Jesus heals a boy possessed by an impure spirit. When they came to the to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd around them, and the teachers of the law arguing with them. As soon as all the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder and ran to greet him. What are you argue, arguing with them about? he asked. A man in the crowd answered, Teacher, I brought you my son, who is possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive the spirit out, but they could not. You unbelieving generation, Jesus replied, how long shall, you, shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. So they brought him. When the spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy to a convulsion. He fell to the ground and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. Jesus asked the boy's father, How long has he been like this? From childhood, he answered. It has often thrown him into fire or water to kill him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. If you can, Jesus said Jesus, everything is possible for one who believes. Immediately the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. When Jesus saw that a crowd was running to the scene, he rebuked the impure spirit. You deaf and mute spirit, he said, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. The spirit shrieked, convulsed him violently, and came out. The boy looked so much like a corpse that many said, he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him to his feet, and he stood up. After Jesus had gone indoors, his disciples asked him privately, Why couldn't we drive it out? He replied, This kind can only, co can only come out by prayer. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The kids are invited to Children's Church. I believe, help my unbelief. That's what the man exclaims as Jesus comes to him and proclaims those who believe. Uh, all things are possible for one who believes. I believe, help my unbelief. Uh, you say it, as I said it there, you begin to, to, to find yourself caught in that, in that position as well. Uh, I do believe, but God help my unbelief. We'll talk about that as we get to it. But this um, is our first Sunday in Lent and our eighth or ninth Sunday in the Gospel of Mark. Um, at Defiance Church, we try to practice the church calendar, which means we practice Epiphany and Lent and Easter and Easter season all the way up to Pentecost and then Trinity Sunday. And one of the reasons for that is, is that as the church and its wisdom has sort of come to that, it's very old, it helps us live into the story. Particularly in that half of the year, we focus on the Gospels. So uh, Advent, we, we have this time of which we place ourselves in expectation of the coming one who will save us. 
And then um, in Christmas, we celebrate that God has shown up, that help has come from the outside, that God is going to free his people. Uh, in Epiphany, we see the revelations of that, uh, the baptism in, in last week, the transfiguration, book end that season. And then Ash Wednesday, in which we remember that we are dust and to which dust we shall return, as well as we are invited into, into sort of a practice of, of self-renciation, of refocusing ourselves as we walk in that season. There's, uh, Carla and several others have said, are we going to have to give up anything for Lent? And it, it's, I was thinking the phrase is weird because it's, are we fasting something for Lent? Are we letting go of some pleasure or some distraction or something so that our hearts can be more clearly drawn to God? is the question. This is, this is one of the reasons, one of my favorite points, which I find somewhat comical, is, is you can't fast from sin. So if you're like, well, I'll give up some sin that I have for the length of Lent, that's actually not, you're supposed to just give up sin. <laughs> and that's not to say it's easy or possible. And, and using the Lenten season to do so might, might be helpful to get you started on that journey of freeing yourself from that sin. But that's not really um, what's called for in that. And so we, we with, withdraw from certain pleasures. There's, there's another one which we add, you know, I've been pr- trying to pray the daily office every day this year, um, and I do well on and off, but I used uh, Lent, the start of Lent on Ash Wednesday, as, a, as another time to redouble those efforts and to begin to do it um, more focused. And so that's been fruitful for me. You, you add, you take away, but it's a season in which we draw our hearts, whether through fasting or through prayer, through reading of Scripture, through almsgiving, um, uh, what are the three in, in the Sermon on the Mount? Almsgiving, fasting, and prayer. Yeah, those, those plus uh, study of Scripture and prayer that we are drawn back into um, who God is for us. There's a, Lent means spring, and it's where we, I try to at least think for myself is what does a spring cleaning for my soul look like? Where there dust and cobwebs gathered within myself in which I can sort of let go of things and begin to move forward into new life. Um, um, and that makes and helps, I think, Easter shine all the brighter, the good news of what God is going to do for us. And so this is the first Sunday that, that we have in that season, and, and um, we have the Stations of the Cross up. The, the songs get a little bit sadder. Um, the texts draw us into the one who's going to suffer and die. Brian read for us during the, the worship set the second prediction of Jesus' death as, as after the transfiguration in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Jesus really sets himself towards going towards the cross into Jerusalem, of going towards his death. Um, that that's sort of where the Gospels are going from there. After that, it becomes clear. Even the passage we have for day to us, the scribes, the teachers of the law, depending on your translation, are coming out trying to, it seems, debating with the disciples because they're unable to hear, cure this um, one possessed with a demon in a form that looks like uh, epilepsy to us. Um, that this conflict is coming. It's, it's a weird thing. I think you've probably found yourself in this position once or twice, is that the disciples can cast out demons and heal, and their inability to do so for a young boy who suffers is cause for victory in the opponents. So you can't do what you thought you could do. And, and it's, that's a really hard thing, I think, for us, too, because there's signs of that in the modern world. Um, there's signs in which we see victory in the errors of our opponents. I mean, there are, 
there are people, this is one contemporary example, who are like, see, I told you Joe Biden wouldn't stand up to Vladimir Putin. And it's like, that's not cause for celebration, whether you're right or wrong. It's cause for lament and for us to try and repair that. Or in a different one, there was, a, there was an SNL skit last week about sort of the end of COVID. And they all were doubting some of the measures we might have taken or this, that, and the other. Not the point, but at the end, to sort of make everybody feel good again, he says, I'm at least happy when an unvaccinated person gets it. And they all laugh and move on. We have that same tendency in our modern world to see that, that the failure of other people to fall into sickness or disrepair, we take as a cause for victory ourselves. And it's a sick and demented thing we see here in this gospel, and it's one we should pray out of our own midst as well. And I'll admit that there are moments in this where I see failure and I'm like, see, I told you so. And what happens in those moments is that it's not cause to rejoice. It's cause to come and pray with. It's cause to come and sit with. It's cause to come and ask, how can we repair along the way of life? See, what's happened is Jesus comes down from the Mount of Transfiguration, the Mount of Glory, the Mount of Revelation of who he is as God's Son, as the resurrected and revealed ones. He comes down to a world this sick and dark again. A sign of victory for my side is your inability to heal someone. Let's debate over whether you have that power at all. Let's debate on what's going on here. There's, um, there's this way in which uh, that being held together in this scene, too. What, what the scene we have for us is, is Jesus returning from that transfiguration scene with his disciples who were there with him, and he comes right back into the sin and distortion and destruction of the world. And this is, we as people are acutely more aware of the suffering of children. It's the child of a man that they're unable to heal. Jesus comes down and is confronted with that reality all over again. And he moves into this spot. Um, This is the, the shape of the story we have for us today, and then it ends with that prediction again. This is the second prediction of going to the cross. He adds in this one that he'll be handed over to men. And it's so much so that, that the opposition that shows up in men, um, in people, is the same sort of opposition that seems to make itself known in demons as well. That there's a force sort of not just outside of us, but also within the, the people in opposition here that seems to have taken root as well. For Satan to, to sort of do his work with Christ in the Gospel of Mark, to sort of bring him to the cross, it takes the work of others as well who are, who are captured by that idea, captured by that um, notion of, of stamping out this light that has come into the world. Is that the light he brings does mean disruption for business as usual, which is perhaps one of the hardest parts of, of becoming a Christian sometimes, is its disruption to business as usual. And so this is uh, the shape of Mark's gospel we've been using. 1 through 8 is his ministry throughout Israel. 9 through 16 is his journey towards the cross. And we'll be in 9 through 16 for the rest of this season all the way up until Easter. Um, One of the things that I wanted to show today is this is a picture talking about the transfiguration coming down of the transfiguration from Raphael. Is that how you say his name? Raphael, Raph, Ra, Ra. See, the Ninja Turtles did not do me well. Um, so I asked Carla the name. Um, 
But as you see Christ transfigured in his glory here and the, the, the disciples with him and Moses and Elijah, you see in the darkness around the man with his son at the bottom right hand, uh, the man with the epileptic son at the bottom. And this is an image that I think captures for us the notion of sort of what this world looks like in some ways, is that we as Christians are drawn into this risen, revealed one, um, and yet we as disciples deal and still uh, see the, the, the destruction the suffering, the life. And it's the world that Christ comes back to, too, after this. It's, he doesn't leave it behind, but, but that he comes back to this place and heals this son, um, that he comes down from the mountain and is greeted again in darkness and death. And so Jesus comes down the mountain and asks of the people, what are you arguing about? Um, which brings us to where we started in that darkness and sort of depression, as Jesus comes down and asks of them, what are you arguing about in relationship to, to this one and to this moment? Jesus and the disciples who have been gone um, as he's been transfixed come back to that world of suffering and death. And the man in the crowd answered, Teacher, I brought you my son who is possessed by, possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. Jesus comes back to and he hears this as, as one who's dealing with a, a, a demon in a way that causes him to sort of not just have seizures, but seizures in a way that are bent towards destruction. This is one of the things that as Christ aims to heal the world in his resurrection, aims to heal us, is that there's this driving out that he does of the things which aim to destroy us. It's, not, it's one thing to be have seizures and be epileptic in, in this case. It's another thing in which when he is so that, the, that he is thrown towards fire and water. Sorry, that's in the, um, the next part. Um, yes, he asks them, how long have you been this way? Sorry, I jumped ahead. Um, that, that Jesus is brought back to this one who is bound in this way. See, this is the problem is I made it that far without my script, which I was not intentionally to do. You just get on a roll, and now I'm like, where's my organization? I haven't looked at it yet. Um, you, you study all week, and you know it well enough that you think you just have it all in you, but you don't. Um, and so Jesus comes, and hears the story of this one who has the spirit within him. Um, but part of the problem seems to be for the disciples is they've been relying on themselves to do this thing rather than relying on Christ. And so Jesus, when he tells them at the end is that the, this is the type of demon that comes out by prayer, as modern readers, we go, they didn't pray? Um, uh, we, we do that before high school football games. Um, uh, that, that casting out demons' relationship to prayer is, is something. And so it seems like they've become somewhat confident in their ability to do this, but so confident they forget who they rely on and where this connection resides. It's not uh, to be lost on us that Jesus is gone when this happens, too, which is the exact situation Mark's church, the original readers of this gospel, find themselves in. Jesus has risen and is now seated at the right hand of the Father, and they are here on earth. So this call to say that prayer is that which binds us 
is important to remember. And so they seem to be going about it by themselves. Um, this, this quote is from Rowan, Rowan Williams. I won't read the whole thing, but, but what he says, uh, I'll just put it up for the top part of it, is he says, to believe uh, in Jesus, Jesus is God, the God of unconditional accessibility and even-handed compassion, to believe in an anarchic mercy that ignores rank, uh, order, and merit, it is to accept that our projects and patterns are the mark of failure, of illusion, of that infantile belief that we can dictate truth and reality. Because it is menacing and painful to be confronted with the knowledge that our constructions of controlled sense are liable to be self -ser empty, self-serving, we readily turn to violence against those bearers of such knowledge. God provokes crisis to destroy our self deceiving reliance on law. God provokes crisis to destroy our self-deceiving reliance on that we can do it without prayer. Our dependence on what we as individuals can make or sustain or what we as societies can administer for our un unchallenged interests. Self-dependence is revealed as the mechanism of self-destruction. Self-dependence is revealed as a mechanism of self-destruction and to cling to it in the face of God is an invitation to trust as a thinly veiled self-hatred. That, that our self-dependence for the disciples here is revealed as an element of our self-destruction. And so often we cling to it in the face of God. And the, 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 the phrase, how I always find this quote, is to cling to it in the face of that anarchic mercy that he speaks above of. Um, to cling to it in the face of that anarchic mercy is a thinly veiled self-hatred. We can do it by ourselves and make our world is nothing but a thinly veiled self-hatred. This second one, this is a story that comes from the book of Numbers. Um, and this quote, you only really preach on Numbers once. So I love this quote. <laughs> I love the story associated with it. So we get it again. It's the Numbers and... Um, uh, Deuteron or yeah, Numbers is where it's related, is this idea that they go into the land and they see giants there and they come back, the, the spies that they send out, if you're not familiar with the story, they send out 12 size spies and they come back and they say there are giants there and we cannot defeat the giants. We need to go back to Egypt. So often how we look out at these situations of demons we can't cast out, of a world in brokenness, and we say we cannot confront that. It's time to go home. And what the spies say is we look like grasshoppers to them. This is uh, rabbinic, uh, trans, or rabbinic midrash on that text, uh, old. They said, they said we look like grasshoppers in our own eyes. God said this I can overlook. In your own eyes... You think you look like grasshoppers. You think you look like you can't confront the problems. God can overlook that. But, and so we looked in their eyes. Here I am angry. Do you know how I made you look in their eyes? Who told you you didn't look like angels in their eyes? For the disciples of Christ, as we look at the disorder and the destruction of the world, it's okay to say we feel so small confronted with that. But if we begin to say they see us, 
The problems and dysfunctions of our world dictate that we are so small. That's where God draws the line. Because who said we didn't look like Christ in their eyes? The ones who heals and overcomes that division. We can't see through other people's eyes. So, I just had to bring that one in today. Like I said, you do that work once and you never get to tell that story again, but I think it relates. Jesus then laments, which again connects us to Numbers and and, um, Deuteronomy, is you unbelieving generation, which is a common lament that God has with his people, is, is they seem to always exist in these patterns of unbelief. How long shall I stay with you? How long shall I be with you? Bring the boy to me. Jesus is one who has to live amongst this unbelieving generation, and particularly coming back from the mountain of the transfiguration down to here, what's revealed to him is that the world still exists in disbelief that God is renewing all things. That with Christ among them, the world shall be repaired. That, that what this journey is about is God's um, casting out of the demonic, that which destroys this battle, and so that he can bring about this victory of which is wholesome and good for us. So they brought the boy to him. When the spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into a convulsion, which is common with demons when they're confronted with Jesus in the Gospels. They instantly sort of rebel. He fell to the ground and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. Jesus asked the boy's father, how long has he been like this? From childhood, it was often... often It has often thrown him into fire or water to kill him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. Jesus' question, how long has he been like this, uh, is an interesting one. The father's answering, answering of it both magnifies the how long this demon has been with this child, the goals of this demon to destroy him, and, and then we talked about this, this uh, fact-finding mission that, that the demons and Jesus sort of interplay on gaining the other one's name, gaining the other one's thing, that gives them this chance to sort of bind them um, and free them. This is not the world we live in, um, but has sort of magic connotations. And so Jesus finding out who he was. But the Father's response um, shows two things, I think, that reveal to us. But if you can do anything... Just the first thing that Jesus is going to latch onto: take pity on us and help us. The father here is. This is another example of in Mark's healing stories. They often come from intercessory prayer, somebody speaking on behalf of the one who is bound. And this should be not be lost on Christians. We pray for each other often, but also it is for us to speak on behalf of the ones who are bound. Take pity on us and help us. He's asking for um, help in the way that a parent only can, that, that this thing can be cast out. Jesus, though, latches on to the if you can, everything is possible for one who believes. If you can, said Jesus, everything is possible for the one who believes. Immediately, the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe, help me overcome my unbelief. This first part, if you can, um, Christ is at this moment talking about that in this scene, what he seals as unfaith in the world. 
How long shall I stay with this faithless generation? Everything is possible from the one who believes is an interesting statement because it's not clear it applies to the Father or that Christ is the one who believes. If you remember back when we went through the book of Galatians, there's this, there's this divide between the faith in Jesus Christ, we have faith in Jesus Christ, or we have the faithfulness or faith of Jesus Christ. We, I think, jump to this obviously means the Father's, but the Father gets the healing, but his response is, I do believe, but I also unbelieve. Everything is possible for the one who believes. I think it's good read in reference to Christ as the one who believes through this. I do, do believe, help me overcome my unbelief is the way Mark's readers, the first church to read this, are stuck in the world. It's the way Christians today are stuck in the world. We do believe God, but overcome and heal our unbelief. The fullness of belief is, is not quite there for us. Calvin, not known as a kind person, although he very much was to, to his people, these two statements may appear to contradict each other, but there is none of us that does not experience both of them in himself. This is Calvin speaking in, in the 1600s, and it's this way in which these things, I believe, but I have unbelief, are bound in the life of the disciples. There is so much in us that pulls us back to the old age and not forward to the new age. Now, my concern here is um, Kierkegaard, I think it was, who said that uh, doubt is not the opposite of faith. Um, that the church long, and I mean in this late modern world, has done good work to heal and to say that doubt and faith are not opposites. It's certainty and faith that are opposites. Um, that we, we've done a lot to sort of express this room for the I believe, but help my unbelief. My limited concern is that we might have over sort of fetishized or found interest in the unbelief pattern of it. The interesting thing is that we do have capacity to believe. The uninteresting, boring human thing that all of us are caught in is that we still have unbelief. But I fear that often, and if you read memoirs of doubt or, or um, uh, modern memoirs of doubt or angst or this, that, and the other, they're often sort of trying to say, my unbelief is interesting. Your unbelief is the same as everybody else's unbelief in which we are captured in. But our faith, what we can speak out, I have faith, is what sets a different plane in our existence. That's what draws us into the new age. That's what creates something. That's what makes possible this healing. He said, you know, let me tell you about why I disbelieve. My son from childhood was caught in a pattern of epilepsy that often tried to kill him. Would be one response. But what he sees in this moment, which is really the act of faith, is to confess, I have belief. But because of what I've seen, because of this world, I'm still latched with unbelief. Heal that 
overcome that. When Jesus saw that the crowd was running to the scene, he rebuked the impure spirit. You deaf and mute spirit, he said, I command you to come out of him and never to enter him again. The spirit shrieked, convulsed him violently and came out of the boy. The boy looked so much like a corpse, they said, he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him to his feet and he stood up. There's just um. Jesus rebukes this deaf and dumb, mute spirit. Um, and, and the result of this battle is one that's so much that the boy looks like he's dead. People say he's dead. In our fasting, in our quest for holiness, in our battles with the demons of destruction and disorder in our world, we rarely see things we think that look like they're dead. Um, but this is, this is the challenge. These things don't go easy. The power they exert aren't easily just thrown out. For Jesus to do an exorcism on the world, to do exorcism on our souls, to free us, is to become ones who are like dead. And we know this. Because it's what we do in our baptisms. We are baptized into death. We are baptized into his watery tomb. And it is a hand that comes from the outside that raises us to new life. These, uh, I don't know about what type of church you grew up in, but, but for me, when I read the Gospels in this scene and how it parallels on what Christ does for us in our baptisms, I think about the ways in which we really are brought to death. For Christians, there's a phrase I like, there are, we are those whom which nothing worse can happen to us than what already has. Because we've been baptized into that death. And so too it is that we then are raised with the hand of Christ and brought into new life. We exist on that second plane, that new line of creation, this new time, this new place. But we still pray. <laughs> I believe, help our unbelief, which is good. I, I didn't mean that in a mean way. Is that We are praying that God will overcome our unbelief that that timeline is the true timeline of our lives. But the other timeline is actually where our belief and where our, our new creation and where our life resides. Jesus heals the young boy. After this, they go indoors. This is an interior discussion for the church, and they ask, why couldn't we drive out the demon? He replied, this time can only come out by prayer. Um, the only way that this type of demon comes out is through continued relationship and relying on the one who, who has redeemed us, on the one who has made this connection possible. It seems to be what Jesus is saying. And read in the context of, of, again, those first century believers, Jesus is gone. If you're going to do this work, you need to be sustained in relationship with him. And the relationship of that bound, uh, of that love and binding is prayer. That's how we stay in relationship with this one. This brings us to the end of the sermon, um, but I wanted to end with this quote from Jacques Ellul. 
just two slides, uh, three slides, so it's a little long. It's on the back of the bulletin, or it starts on the back of the bulletin. But this is the church's work in the world, is to be a body who prays. Now, Lul is going to use Hitler as an example. Does anybody know the rule, the first person to bring up Hitler in an argument loses the argument? Um, Lul actually helped hide Jews from Hitler. So when you read this, don't read him as somebody saying prayer is better in the fight against Hitler than anything else. He actually... Uh, do people know the, the righteous among the nations, the trees where they bury for Gentiles who helped save Jews, particularly during the Holocaust? It's, it's a garden in Israel. Jacques Ellul has a tree there. He was, it was put in favor of him in 2001. So Jacques Ellul is one who has seen what looks like a corpse when we read this. But one of the things that this argument begins with is this idea is that Christians in the modern world want to get busy and respectable in the ways that make the world understand us. And prayer is not one of those things. We want our effort to be seen so that the world knows that we're doing something. Alul's point, again, as somebody who's actually faced Nazism, is prayer is what Christians can do. Anyone else can do a lot of the justice work, but it is prayer that is unique to the church. This is why, in, face, in the facing of Hitler, it is true that he represented a satanic power that was first a spiritual battle to wage. Prayer is what should have been decisive, but no, we no longer have confidence in the extraordinary power of prayer. Prayer was the exorcism that drives out demons by the Holy Spirit, the armor of faith. It is quite possible that if Christians had truly acted according to these means while everyone else was thinking material warfare, which was also necessary, or simply blessing guns, the result would, have been, would not have been this horrifying triumph, triumph of the Hitlerian spirit that we now see throughout the world. The world today is reaping what Christians have sown. In the face of spiritual peril, Christians called to arms and fought materially, materially triumphant, we are spiritually vanquished. Only Christians could have waged spiritual battle, but they did not do so. They did not fulfill their role in the preservation of the world. And today are we witnessing the same air with Reconstruction. This is German Reconstruction. Christian and churches have first to do a spiritual kind of work, a work of realizing the world's true situation, seeking after and preaching the order of God. Christian reconstruction, the formation of a civilization that is on the right level for human beings. This is a work precisely within the real possibility of the church. This is a work that the church can do. Everything else is futile if, it is not, if that is not accomplished. Everything else can only lead to more disorder. It seems to me that this participation, which is both real and specific for the world's preservation, can lead uh, to the idea of re the redeeming of time. Prayer for him leads to the idea of redeeming time. For us as Defiance Church, there is a call to get busy. There's a call to do more work in the world. There is a call to take up arms and to bless arms. But what Jesus says, confronted with demons that seek to destroy, the strongest ones can only come out by prayer. We have failed to see the mysterious power of prayer, is what Elul says. 
And it's for us, called after hearing Jesus tell us this, to redeem time in that way, to pray in that way, to be in that way. Perhaps it is the work of getting busy that resists on the timeline of unbelief. But when we pray, I believe, help my unbelief. We're perhaps being called by Jesus back into the practice of prayer for our world, for societal conditions, for our own souls, for our children, for our friends, for those whom which cannot pray for themselves. If you can do anything, help us. Anything is possible for the one who believes. Let us pray. God, you have come down from the Mount of Transfiguration and returned to your ministry amongst Israel. When you do so, you are immediately again confronted with the darkness that is entrenched in the land, with spirits that seek to destroy even children. We, like the disciples, are tempted to rely on ourselves, on our own works, on our own busyness, on our own self-dependence to resolve these problems. And yet it is our bound of love through prayer to you how demons are driven out. We, like the Father God, pray and acknowledge our belief. And as we go forth with large or small belief that we have, we pray and ask that you overcome our disbelief, our unbelief, so that we can go into the world armed with prayer to cast out that which distorts and destroys it, to bring about the kingdom you seek to establish here. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.